Richard, have you ever felt that life is monotonous? You know, the same sort of thing day after day after day after day? Kind of like Groundhog Day. Exactly like Groundhog Day. So I'm assuming you've seen the film. Well, not as many times as Phil Connors, Bill Murray's character, the cynical weatherman, wakes up in Punxsutawney, which is, I don't know, who knows, millions of times. But yes, double Wait, is digits. That a spoiler ver- spoiler yes, alert? Yes, <laughs> if you haven't seen the movie, it's repetitive. That's kind of the point. You probably know that by now. But I mean, like a lot of people that saw the movie initially, it was just a comedy, right? Back and then it was a funny movie. Yeah. But over the, t- over the years, as I've aged and also become wiser, um, the philosophical sure. aspects of the meaning of life stuff, what's going on, have become sort of more appealing. And for lack of a better word, the science of it, the being stuck in a time loop, as today's what if mm-hmm. is, or as the physicists call it, a causal loop. Oh, a causal loop. Well, I would uh, define a causal loop as a theoretical proposition, which of course means by means of either retrocausality or time travel. A sequence of events is among the causes of another event, which in turn among the causes of the first mentioned event. Wow, that was that was incredibly natural and authentic. That's how I normally. <laughs> yes, that. it's exactly right off the top of your head. But I mean, yes, obviously, this has become a, a genre in films. And it's not just Groundhog Day, obviously. No, there's progressed. There's uh, Day After Tomorrow, which uh, with Tom Cruise, Emily Blunt, it's kind of a, uh, an haven't action movie. Of course, you haven't seen it. Uh, Russian Doll. Have seen it, loved it. It was an excellent yes. series on Netflix. Yes. And also the most, let's say the most recent entrant into this time loop genre is Palm Springs, which is out right now. Have you seen that? I'm going to surprise you here. And yes, I have wow. seen it. Breaking well, news. It doesn't really surprise you because you suggested maybe that I watch it. So I did yes. watch it and I loved it. It was great. I mean, it's an interesting it's an interesting idea for anybody to consider, okay, imagine you're stuck in a time loop and you're having to wake up, you know, every day over and over and again and again. It's been it's explored now in a whole bunch of cool series and movies. But really, the person who wrote the book on this genre, or I guess more accurately wrote the script for Groundhog Day, which is, you know, is, is, is kind of the, the top of the pyramid for this genre, is, of course, our guest today, Danny Rubin. Danny Rubin is an American screenwriter and playwright, most famous for penning the American classic comedy that became part of not only popular culture, but of our everyday lexicon as well. Yeah, that's right, Groundhog Day. If you haven't seen it, you've probably said it, but Danny isn't just an award-winning screenwriter. He's also one of us, a science geek. He got his BA in biology from the prestigious Brown University and once aspired to be a science journalist himself. He later went on to teach English at a little school called Harvard. In 2016, Groundhog Day the Musical opened on Broadway to rave reviews and went on to be nominated for seven Tony Awards. So great to have you here, Danny. Uh, Welcome to What If Discussed. Thank you. Happy to be here. So Groundhog Day, we talked about it off the top. You couldn't talk time loops unless you're talking about this iconic film, which again, at one point was just a really cool movie that was, you know, successful at the box office, critically acclaimed. And then over the years, it started to get looked at and scrutinized from everybody from economists to philosophers to Hindu spiritualists to psychologists. When did this, when did you notice that this movie was becoming more than just a, you know, a cool Hollywood movie and becoming something more. 
Well, the, the first signs came within the first year when I started getting fan mail, which screenwriters don't get. Um, <laughs> and and uh, the fan mail was coming from unusual places. The first one I got was from a monk in Germany. Uh, uh, and uh, the second one was from England, from a, a couple that um, followed the, the Kabbalah and they thought that there was some connections there. And then a philosophy professor in uh, uh, Pittsburgh um, who used to teach that I had um, somehow articulated Nietzsche's uh, eternal recurrence um, that he had written about, uh, all these things. And Harold Ramis also um, was getting all kinds of notes from monks and, you know, Buddhists and uh, everybody was starting to pile on from unusual places. So uh, that's when we, uh, for me, it was sort of gratifying because I knew that there was more meat to it than just a simple comedy. That's what was in it. And I didn't know if people were going to get it or not. And when these things started coming back, it was great. And then it was sort of a slow burn for another 10 or 15 years. And then slowly people started using it to refer to the being stuck in some repetitive cycle. Um, during the, the Iraq war, um, a lot of soldiers were there feeling their days were repetitive. And I started seeing uh, that uh, echoed then. And then it started creeping into politics and then it just became part of the lexicon. Danny, we know from uh, your, bio, uh, your bio that we just read that you have a BA in biology and uh, maybe people don't know you wanted to become a science communicator at one point. So obviously, like our audience and everybody watching today, you are a very curious person. How has your curiosity shaped um, your writing? I think because I, I don't ever take on a script idea for something that I already know about. Mm. Um, I always try to find something about it that's going to challenge me where I'm going to have to learn something. I, I kind of figured out a long time ago that uh, most Hollywood careers involve, or screenwriting careers involve writing scripts that don't get made and often don't sell. And so, and I knew people who were like, uh, man, this guy was, had lost his house, had lost his apartment, had, was living out of his car. And that's when he sold his first screenplay that changed everything. I kind of decided I wasn't going to be that guy. Um, if I couldn't sell anything, that was, I wasn't going to have my entire hat hanging on that. I wanted the process of writing to be fulfilling in my life as well. So uh, I think satisfying curiosities and things I was just toying with in my mind or interested in learning more about was always an ingredient in the writing. It's kind of ironic, though, because it seems, again, from reading about you, that what you sort of, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but let's use despised. <laughs> uh, you could correct me, but was in terms of, let's say, the, the studio process in Hollywood, was the formulaic script writing process that there was a very specific, you know, sort of first act, second act, third act that many studios wanted, which to your point earlier, didn't challenge you, didn't didn't require you to sort of dig deeper. So ironically, it was a Groundhog Day type of approach that Hollywood generally wants is to, even though the movies seem different, they want the scripts to be kind of repetitive. Is that fair? Well, I, I suppose so. I, I don't know if I despise it, but it is something that I have to 
deal with is the fact that I don't want to and many creative writers can take a formula and find something original within it and I suppose I could do that too but for me playing with the form and playing with people's expectations is part of the game and it's part of what makes it fun I think um, I perceived a very savvy movie going audience who could see through the formulas and and understand where they're going and know that if you change it just a little bit they can get a bit of a jolt from that um, a, a feeling that they're getting something new and original and unexpected um, I, I can feel when you watch too many formula movies you just get a cynical audience and you wind up training people to eat mcdonald's hamburgers instead of a wider diet um, anyway uh, i don't remember what the question was but i'm somewhere in the track right no, but that's it. And, and you went on to teach uh, script writing at Harvard as well. So I'm guessing this was this gave you the opportunity to kind of pass that on to future script writers that, yes, of course, you have to sort of stay within, you know, the formula. But there's ways to be able to divert from that to keep people audiences on their toes, which, like you said, I think people want that generally. Right. I think so. But people also like comfort food. True. I do. With so many choices uh, of things to watch, as we've all noticed in the last few months, um, a lot of them are very much the same. And some people are drawn to that. Oh, there's there's a familiar movie I think I'm going to like. Um, and other people go the absolute opposite direction. I want to go to my highest level of discomfort and see something that I've never seen before that maybe critics didn't even like. So... Uh, I, don't, I don't know what people want. I think if anybody did, uh, they'd be making a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting uh, uh, to me, Danny, when I read more about this, is that uh, obviously uh, Bill Murray and Harold Ramis had been partners and friends for a long time. They had made Stripes and Caddyshack and Ghostbusters. Um, but ironically, in this movie, they sort of differed in their approach to it. Uh, Ramis wanted to go with more of the comedy tack to it, but uh, apparently Bill Murray wanted to explore more of the philosophical aspects. And they differed so much on this that it ended their friendship, um, made them estranged for years. But in the end, do you think that it was that... Um, you know, the headbutting and the pushing and pulling of, you know, one philosophical point of view, one comedy point of view. Is that what made this movie, uh, you know, resonate with people so much? I doubt it. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, it's a good observation, but I don't even know if it's true. Do you think it could have gone one way or the other? Like if it was a full comedy, would it be as, as widely respected? Or if it was a philosophical uh, exploration, would it be the movie that it ended up being? Kind of strikes being? the perfect balance. Yeah. Well, it does. And we were all sort of uh, had skin in the game. And, and Harold, you know, he, he wanted to do a, a smart, clever movie and he saw that there was that potential within this concept and he also uh, you know the script that I presented to him was not Hollywood formula it was if anything kind of more like a, a an Ealing Studios English movie which to me at the time I just sort of felt um if I've ever seen a movie any time before then that kind of movie is producible it's something that somebody could make. Uh, it didn't occur to me that Hollywood only makes a certain kind of movie in a certain way. And Harold was aware of that. And I was pushing up against uh, standard convention. And I think his move to make it a little bit more 
not even more comedic, just more a Harold Ramis film, you know, where his sensibilities were. It wasn't just to make it funnier, it was just to make it a, the kind of film that the studio might actually produce. Mm. And um, uh, Bill and I both sort of fought against certain, certain adolescent instincts. It wasn't just to make it funny, but is it really the kind of funny we want to, to show, you know, um, Bill Murray uh, as a, a, I don't know, degenerate adolescent type? Mm. Is it necessary? How much of that do you need? And so I don't know if that was really what the split was about. I really don't know why they were um, fighting. And I think it was mostly generated by Bill. I think Harold wanted everybody to get along, but he didn't know why Bill was so angry and Bill was just being uncooperative to him. So um, it interfered with the process, I guess. I was the first time in this situation, I was kind of in between and, and didn't really know how to deal with it. I just tried to be uh, as helpful as I could to everybody and hope that it worked out. Be pretty stressful to say the least, because the, these are two massive stars at the time, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Bill Murray, obviously more so, but Harold Ramis, again, you know, Ghostbusters, you know, directing all that. So this would have been, would have been tough for you to sort of be in the middle of that. And, and I guess, it's kind of interesting that the character Phil Connors was pretty cynical and, yeah. and, and a bit of an ass. <laughs> so maybe, I don't know, was he method acting perhaps? Who knows, but he, he did a good job. Uh, I was skeptical at first when they told me they'd cast him. I was thinking, oh, so this is how it's going to be. Harold Ramis is determined to make a Harold Ramis comedy. And I'm afraid that the good stuff, all the humanistic stuff that's in there, is going to get um, ignored. And casting Bill Murray was in my mind casting a comedian as mm. opposed to casting a, an actor who can do comedy. But Bill, um, to his credit, and, and I'm very delighted to say, was on a different journey. He was on his way to becoming an actor. He was trying very hard and he was working at it and thinking of himself that way. And that, um, I think was useful. It, it, it helped him dig deeper into the character. And uh, I'm sure he was drawing on his own experience, whether it was being, being sort of the asshole Bill or being the good guy Bill. You know, any actor will tell you it's all them somewhere. Mm. Well, it's interesting too, because in the end, people sort of look back at Groundhog Day as the beginning of that actor that in, ends up going on to be nominated for Oscars and Lost in Translation and, mm -hmm. and obviously a lot of the collaboration with Wes Anderson. And it's also interesting to me anyways that, you know, the character Phil Connors, like the initial part where he's resisting, right? Obviously, who wouldn't be resisting? You're waking up in the same day every day. You're going to freak out. You're going to whatever, cut to, then you're going to start trying to kill yourself. Whatever you're going to do to get out of this nightmare. But then at some point, he just kind of accepts it, right? And he starts to then even almost artistically try to create the perfect day. And he sort of has this transition. Is that part of what the, maybe if the philosophical undertones uh, about life as an analogy that, you know, don't resist, just accept, and you find joy, happiness. Is that fair to say? Well, it's fair. I don't, I don't know if it's limited by that. I, I swear I've heard from so many people whose experience of the movie is so different from each other in terms of the specific things that they are able to drill in on. You know, um, I set it up like an experiment without any expectations. 
I didn't know where it was going to go, but I thought of, I mean, what if perfectly, what if a guy was stuck repeating the same day? And I just put myself in that situation. And I thought the first day it would just feel weird and disorienting. And we're all socialized to try and get along and not create upset. And so he just sort of was bewildered the whole first day that repeated. And then the second day repeated, it was starting to freak him out because it felt like, gee, this might really be happening. And then the third day, total freak out. Um, how do you stop this? How do I get out of this? Is anyone else experiencing this? How, you know, you do the, your scientific inquiry. What are all of the, the boxes? What could this possibly be? Let's theorize. Um, obviously his goal is to get out of it and to stop it and to make it go away. And when, after he discovers even death isn't going to stop it, that's, it's not that he accepts it, but that he stops fighting, how do I get out of it? You know, stops it. looking at that and starts looking at how do I live? How do I live? I don't know if I'm a god. I don't know if this was a scientific weirdo thing that happens. And Actually, could I, could I quote one of my favorite lines from the movie too? And I've, I've said it before when Andy, uh, Andy McDowell says to him, do you think you're God? He goes, well, not the God, <laughs> but a God. Is that, did I get it right? Uh, no, but you're correct. That's, that was a great line. <laughs> Thank you. It was mine. Um, uh, <laughs> Danny, my favorite line was uh, Ned, Ned Ryerson. <laughs> yes, exactly. Can, can I just ask you, how much personally do you wonder about the existential aspects of life? Like, I'm guessing you live in New Mexico, so you probably spend a lot of nights gazing up, uh, s staring at the stars, surrounded by a rich indigenous history. Like, there must be a lot of uh, pondering in your life. Um, why do you believe you wrote this movie in the end? Was there a bigger significance to it than what you thought at the time? I, I don't know. I, I, you know, you can always look back at these things and dig in and say, well, obviously because of the kind of person I was then, it came out this way. But very clearly, we were not trying to preach to anybody about anything. Um, we were just telling a story. I was just telling a story. And I was aware of all the, the humanistic ramifications and, and the existential situation. I mean, just the fact that, you know, the studio kept trying to give us a reason for his being stuck in the time loop because that conformed to their idea of storytelling. And, and this is how this kind of comedy story works. And my feeling was, if you don't have an explanation of how we got here, you make it just, we put everybody into that seat because none of us know how we got here. And none of us know what the rules are. And we ask, you know, we look to our parents and teachers and leaders and civilization and other people to try and figure out, well, what are the rules? <laughs> what are the limits? And we all figure out that we have to find love and, uh, and make something of ourselves in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I believe that I already had that kind of perspective going into writing it. So it doesn't surprise me that it ended up there. And frankly, Harold is a very um, thoughtful, philosophical, questioning guy. He, per, he goes after it or went after it more in terms of experience and reading a lot of books and, and getting as much knowledge and hearing other people's perspective and joining men's groups and being part of a you know, uh, uh, active in, 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 
I wanted to say inquisition isn't the right word, <laughs> inquiry, I guess, into yeah. all of these great issues. Um, I'm not quite so formal about it. As you say, I moved to the kind of place where you notice the beauty of the universe constantly. Um, I, I, uh, and the, the cultural diversity makes you wonder, okay, what are the limits? What do different people believe? What have other cultures adapted in ways of dealing with life? And one of the things that I think most people in Santa Fe have in common is the general appreciation for moment to moment of life and some thoughtfulness and a little bit less ambition. Um, and it just is a slightly quieter and less anxious place from which to explore whatever it is I'm thinking about. Hmm. Yeah, sounds beautiful. Maybe we could all use uh, getting stuck in a time loop uh, to in sort Santa of Fe, figure yeah. some of those things out. And certainly, uh, I'd take a week in Santa Fe yeah, right sure. now as well. But uh, for Peter and I, it's been a, great, a real pleasure. We're massive fans of the movie. So thanks for giving us the opportunity to sort of wake up and punk Satani again. <laughs> and again. One more time. And again. Uh, what, what is going on with you these days? I know that the musical, Groundhog Day, the musical, it was a massive hit and won tons of Tonys in it, or, or nominated for Tonys. What are you up to these days? And, and what can we, where can we follow what you're doing? Oh, kind of you to ask. I, I'm not promoting myself in any big way. So there's no, you know, I have a website I never visit. Um, so I welcome anyone else to do that too. But uh, I'm working on a stage play. If that ever comes up, uh, you can look for it. But the world of theater is closed for the time being. So, you know, don't hold your breath. Um, in the meantime, I'm a songwriter. I write a lot of songs, uh, oh, mostly yeah. for my amusement and for that of my friends. But I'm starting to reach into the community a little bit more and, and maybe you'll hear hear some of that at some point. Well, thanks thanks for uh, asking. Um, I'm always working on movie and television series ideas. Maybe something will pop up someday. Perfect. Great to hear from you, Danny. Thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. And I appreciate you guys. Enjoy. Super cool getting to talk to Danny Rubin. Uh, like Love Groundhog that. Day is one of my favorite movies and I'm you've seen it like Got to be a top 10 movie. I've seen it a thousand times. Yes. Yeah. And so if you have seen it a lot, you would remember that Bill Murray, obviously, after waking up in Punxsutawney, like, I don't know, a million times, he starts to get, you know, disillusioned, suicidal, yeah. disheveled. Mm -hmm. Even he, he shows up, I think, to do the weather hit one day in his pajamas, <laughs> unshaven. You know what he could have used? What could he have used, Richard? How about the lawnmower? 3.0. <laughs> How's that for a segue, That's Peter? That's great. It's from Manscaped, who's our sponsor today. And uh, speaking of disheveled, I think you remember at the at the beginning of this, I thought I was going to, at the beginning of COVID, the pandemic, yes. I thought I was going to grow a little bit of a beard because I thought we, yeah, we'll, we'll be home for like three weeks. Yes. Nobody thought it was going to be five months. Yes, so cut to five months later. Yeah. So uh, I got one of these from from uh, Manscaped and the Lawnmower 3.0. And it's the perfect uh, personal grooming device mm -hmm. that I use for this. I've got it. It's got a couple different uh, settings on it. You can go number two or number one. Well, relative to a couple of episodes ago where you were. Right. It was a little bit bushier. So this week I did the number one. You can hear it going. I don't know if you, I don't know if you can hear How's it. How's that on the skin? It's great on the skin. It's uh, they've got this Nick free technology. So you don't cut yourself like you used to cut yourself. Yes. Not, not on their product, yeah. but on other people's product, you would cut yourself. 
So this has got nick free technology and the blades, it's some sort of patented blade. I don't know exactly what they what they term it, but you get replacement blades every three months when you get the perfect package 3.0 essentials kit. Which we both received. We, and thank yeah. you, Manscaped, yeah. because beyond just this, got a whole bunch of other essential oils, some other cool stuff. Yeah, there was a there was no not essential oils, but there was a uh, anti chafing deodorant yes. and a, uh, a moisturizing s- spray. Uh, that helped out, uh, as well as a free pair of underwear, a travel bag, and like I say, you get the the free blades or not free blades, but you get replacement blades every three months when you get mm-hmm. the package. How you liking the new beard? I, I'm going to have to go in the washroom and finish this off. If you guys would like to get something like this, you can get 20% off at Manscaped.com when you use the promo code What If. So go to Manscaped.com and use the promo code What If. And what if, what if, and get one of these things and clean yourself up. What if you were more clean shaven? What if? That's a story for another what if. So we get to return one more time to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania mm-hmm. with uh, Danny Rubin. One more that, time. That one more time. <laughs> um, a, a couple of cool takeaways, especially what I thought, like his last answer was really interesting and thoughtful and philosophical. But it, it, it did surprise me that really out of the gate, they, he, you know, he talked about getting fan letters. You know, back in the mm-hmm. day, there was no emails. Literally got fan letters. Mentioned a German monk, which is, is kind of an oxymoron, you think. Like, you don't think a lot of German monks. Yeah. But that it started to almost out of the gate be something that people were responding to from a philosophical standpoint more than just, hey, that was a really funny movie. Right, because it's all about, it is all about the philosophical mm-hmm. uh, point of view. And I thought it was very funny that he got more uh, letters from monks. Yes. Like more monks. All the monks in the world are like... All of a sudden he's got, he's got pen pals. But it's interesting <laughs> because if you, if you pals. you know, like you, you have, you know, whether it's the Hindu religion talking about karma, you know, reincarnation, there's mm-hmm. a lot of aspects when you start to look at, you know, Buddhism, philosophy in general, that, that you come back to this idea of, as he talked about, it was very well worded the way he put it. I asked about Bill Murray accepting his fate and he sort of turned it, I can't remember his exact wording, but he was he said it's not so much accepting, he just stopped resisting it. Right. Right? And yeah. Just sort of went with the flow and was kind of present for that, which is something you would hear, you know, whether it's a new age Deepak Chopra or Eckhart Tolle, or if you're listening to somebody talk about, you know, Buddhism, you know, from a theological perspective. Yeah, I think it's probably a, a movie that resonated with the monks yes. because it was probably one of the first movies that talked about existentialism. Mm-hmm. It was probably one of the first movies that, you know, dove into those sort of topics. And mm-hmm. since then, it's been become a very popular trope or yes. subject. Tons you know, of movies like tons this Tons of now. movies, not necessarily just stuck in a time warp, but also just thinking about your existential existence on the earth. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, like Groundhog Day, when you when people use the term, right? And, you know, it's part of our lexicon now. Like people that have never seen the movie will reference, oh man, this week has felt like Groundhog, Groundhog Day. Day. And they mean, obviously, the same thing over and over yeah. again. Referring to the movie. Which is negative, but there's also aspects of it that are, I think, positive in that, like, you know, he initially you go through these things in your life that you're like, oh my God, whatever. It's always after the fact that you look back and say, well, that's what ultimately got me to sort of be more aware, take notice and say, okay, what do I got to switch up here? Because whatever I'm doing, it ain't working. And what do we know about one of the definitions of, uh, of insanity? It's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Different results. <laughs> 
Well, if you liked this episode, maybe you'll like to Groundhog Day it mm-hmm. and go back to the beginning and watch it all over again. Which we appreciate. Keep, Groundhog keep Day those it again. views up. Yeah. Or maybe you just want to dig a little deeper into the subject. And if that is the case, we'll go a little deeper next when we speak with Ryan Wasserman, professor of philosophy at Western Washington University, about the paradoxes of time travel. So join us for that. We'll talk more about time paradoxes, time loops, and uh, maybe finding love and getting out of our time loop. Ryan Wasserman is a professor of philosophy at Western Washington University. He specializes in metaphysics, ethics, and language, and explores a range of fascinating puzzles raised by the possibility of time travel. His book, The Paradoxes of Time Travel, delves into paradoxes of time travel, including the grandfather paradox, the bootstrapping paradox, and the special relativity paradox. Ryan uses entertaining examples from physics, science fiction, and popular culture in a well-written and accessible style that makes it a must-read for sci-fi fans everywhere. Hey, Ryan, how are you? Welcome to the show. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me here. So, Groundhog Day, we discussed it uh, earlier in the show with Danny Rubin, sort of the the pinnacle, the top of the pyramid for the time loop, time loop movies, the yeah. time loop movies, and not necessarily something you'd want to be stuck in in real life. It doesn't look loop. like it. No. It'd kind of probably drive you crazy, but a cool plot device for movies. Groundhog Day has stood the test of time, but I ask you, Ryan Wasserman, has it stood the test of time travel? Yeah, it's a great film, obviously, but the uh, kind of time travel depicted there doesn't exactly match up with the kind of picture you get from contemporary physics or uh, from philosophy. So, for example, one of the most familiar uh, methods of time travel in physics is uh, the use of wormholes. And physicists talk about space or space-time as something that can be stretched and curved. And so you can kind of picture a a flat piece of paper being folded over uh, onto itself, and you can imagine punching a hole connecting the top piece of the paper to the the bottom side. And then you can think of drawing a line, maybe from the edge of that hole, across the paper, under the paper, and then back up through the hole that you've created. And when it comes out, it'll be there right next to the part of the line you started drawing in the first place. Now, if you think of that line as uh, depicting the history of a time traveler uh, using a wormhole. You get a a picture of time travel that takes you back to the past, maybe back to the very morning um, you started off with. But I would say the key point there is that when the line comes out of the the hole on the piece of paper, there are two line segments there. there. There's a part of the line you started drawing initially, and then there's the part you're continuing to draw as it comes out of the hole. And If that's then analogous to time travel, then when the traveler emerges from a wormhole, uh, end up back where they were that morning, they should find another version of themselves there. Hmm. They're earlier. So not the same one that Bill Murray continues or his character Phil Connors continues to see. You're saying, would he be younger? Right. Well, he would be 24 hours younger. There should be a version of him in his bed there. And then when he pops out of the wormhole, if it was a wormhole he was traveling through, he'd be standing there looking at his slightly younger self lying in the bed. And if he went around the loop again uh, many times, 
there should be many versions of Bill Murray there, just like you would have with the line. If you kept drawing circles, hmm. well, you'd have a whole bunch of line segments there um, coming out of the circle, all at the same place. That's, that's, like you say, not what's depicted in the film. And so at least in that respect, it doesn't really match up with that model of time travel. Ryan, it sounds like you've thought of this already. So is it safe to say that you'll be adding a time loop paradox to your list in the next edition of Paradoxes of Time Travel? Well, I actually just finished re-editing the book for its paperback edition. And so I can't even uh, start to think about working on <laughs> the book again. But if there's ever another edition, I uh, promise I will look at expanding the material on time loops for you. It'd be fun. So the newest entry to the genre, I know you saw it. We talked about it off the top, Palm Springs. Palm Springs is the, great. Yeah, the, I liked it. Um, I, I really enjoyed it, actually. But again, they, they, they play off of that time loop, stuck in a time loop trope. Does it stand up to the test of science? Yeah. So, I mean, that film is obviously inspired by Groundhog Day in some ways. And uh, I would say it, it um, runs into at least some of the same problems. So... There too, I would say, when the characters uh, uh, go around the circle and go around the loop and end up back in the past, they should find earlier versions of themselves there because they were, in fact, there the morning beforehand. But um, at least one thing the movie does is it, it explicitly mentions uh, wormholes and tries to tie it to work in contemporary physics. And so it's at least trying to offer a kind of explanation, a scientific explanation there of how uh, time travel works. But I mean, even there, I would say uh, it gets some of the, the science wrong. So um, for example, in the movie, uh, you know, the characters, their initial reaction, their first inclination is to try and get as far away from the ranch or from the, uh, the mouth of the wormhole as possible. And uh, the one character drives across you know, the, the states to, to Texas. And yet still, no matter how far she drives, the second she falls asleep, she wakes up right back where she started. And at least if we're talking about wormholes in the way that contemporary physicists think about them, uh, that's not right. You actually have to go through the mouth of the wormhole if you want to end up on the other side. And so, uh, I mean, kind of like a, a traffic circle that's connecting a couple of roads if you don't want to keep going in circles, you just need to turn your car and get away from the circle. And so you should be able to do the same thing in the movie as well. It's interesting because in Palm Springs, they have that difference, uh, which is that, you know, the spoiler alert, if you haven't watched it, they go through that sort of in the cave, right? That wormhole, wormhole. that, that yeah. Ryan's referring to, where it's interesting that Danny talked about the studio wanted in Groundhog Day, they wanted an explanation of why. For why. And he said, there. no, actually, we'll just go with, he just continues to wake up and we're not going to actually provide how this happened, where Palm Springs chose to provide that sort of answer, which, you know, I don't know if they felt the pressure to, and even, even to the point where she, again, spoiler alert, um, she really goes down the road of investigating the physics ultimately to quote unquote, solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Ryan, you bring up a, a point that uh, you, what I'm thinking, what if you killed yourself? Cause that's one thing that they explore in both of those movies is committing suicide to stop the loop. Is that something that science would support? 
Um, I mean, I don't know if it would support killing yourself, uh, yeah. but it would definitely support uh, the idea that if you die, then at least from your perspective, the story is over. You're not going to continue along the loop because you are dead. Um, and so um, if you're ever trapped in a loop, I would definitely uh, not recommend, for example, strapping explosives to yourself in the way <laughs> yes. that you're addicted. Don't try that at home. Yeah, I would just try to get as far away from the mouth of that wormhole as I could. Um, and now we've uh, we've learned a bit about string theory over the years. Some people have heard of it and understand it. Some people don't, like me. But with string theory and other more modern theories in physics, you know, parallel universes have become somewhat more plausible. So maybe you can tell us where would time travel end and where would dimensional travel begin? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, the idea that there are parallel universes out there, uh, at least in physics, goes back to the 1950s and uh, a many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And the picture there is whenever there's a quantum event and uh, you have some object that could be in one state or another, the universe actually splits. And in one branch, the object is in one state. And in the other branch, it's in a, a different incompatible state. And um, so you get a kind of uh, branching tree depicted where each uh, branch of the tree is supposed to kind of represent a, a new universe. And uh, some scientists have suggested that that model would allow for time travel to the past, even maybe allow you to change the past in the way depicted in films like, uh, well, like Back to the Future 2 or the, mm -hmm. the more recent Avengers Endgame film. Um, but I think there's at least uh, two worries for that picture. One is, I mean, I don't know if that picture helps us get around the kind of uh, duplication problem I was just raising for films like uh, Groundhog Day and Palm Springs. If um, the universe is splitting all the time, everything in it is splitting as well, including mm. you and me and Bill Murray. Yeah. Um, and so if you travel over to one of those other parallel universes, uh, you should find, well, two copies of yourself. There's the you that arrived there naturally just because the universe is splitting in the way that it is often doing. Um, but then there's also the you there from uh, uh, time travel who's moving over from the other universe. And so, again, I think you would you would find two of you there. But I actually think... The, the more general worry is the one suggested by your question. I guess, I mean, I kind of take it as definitional uh, backward time travel, that it involves traveling back to an earlier time. And that's not exactly what you get in the many worlds picture. The place you end up at, I mean, it might look a lot like your world from 24 hours ago, but the fact is it's a different world. You're on a different branch with uh, different things going on there. And so the point uh, where you end up, it's not in the past relative to the point of your departure. And so I wouldn't think that's really time travel. It's more like you say uh, a kind of quantum leap scenario. And um, it might not be time travel, but Another good no, show. Another, yeah, I was just going to say. We the forgot old, to talk uh, about that Scott show. Bakula. Yeah. <laughs> Quantum Leap. Dating good yourself. Good show. Um, so speaking of pop culture, I yeah. mean, this is one of the cool things you do with your book, Paradoxes of Time Travel. 
So we've we've referenced it multiple now where you're getting into the either that going back in time, time loops, or even dimensional travel or parallel universe travel. What are the ones for you? Give us your top three, let's say, the ones that resonate with you best because they sort of get it right. Yeah. So in the book, I try to go into the, the history of science fiction and uh, books and short stories. But as far as like films um, and films that people might have seen, uh, two, I think, do a pretty good job of getting it right. Two big budget films, that would be uh, Contact and Interstellar, uh, oh, both yeah. of which feature the talented Matthew McConaughey. Yes. Yeah. All right. And also, but to that point, uh, had, you know, Nobel laureate Kip Thorne as the, uh, you know, as we, as we talked about with uh, Bill Nye in a recent episode, as the consultant on that. So perhaps maybe that's why Christopher Nolan was so intent on getting the science right. And to your, to your point, he did. Yeah. I mean, they get the basics, right. They get the big picture, right. And then, you know, you have to make some adjustments to, to have a good story, but those are both, I think really well done films. And like you say, Christopher Nolan really cared about getting it right. Um, If you want to, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, a smaller film and one people might not have seen before I'd recommend the Spanish film Time Crimes. Uh, Time Crimes is just a small independent film, but it is a perfectly coherent uh, time travel movie. It uh, accurately represents some of the key paradoxes of time travel. And then, I mean, unlike most films, it actually avoids those paradoxes. So I could definitely recommend uh, Time Crimes. I'm going to check that out because I love yeah. this genre. So all over time crimes. I'm, I'm big into Spanish uh, TV right now. I just finished watching Money Heist. Have you seen that? So uh, somebody, it's funny because that's exactly what I thought of when Ryan mentioned that because somebody's highly recommended uh, Money Heist to me as well. Completely off topic, but it's a great show. You should watch it. It's incredible. You won't uh, be sorry. Gracias. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, you're a philosopher. And uh, in the end, maybe you can give us your philosophical breakdown of Groundhog Day and just... you. Talk about the idea of being stuck in a time loop in general. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't know how much these films, films like uh, Groundhog Day and uh, Palm Springs, teach us about the the philosophy of time travel, specifically. I kind of don't think that's the point of the films. More existentialism or like, why are we here? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the more interesting questions they're using time travel to raise are questions about Uh, meaning about the meaning of life and so in both of those films you know at some point the characters are confronted with this fact that uh, nothing that they do is going to have a lasting impact on the world around them or on any of the people around them because everything is uh, reset every day and so all traces of, of their actions are destroyed and so I mean naturally in both cases that leads to the thought that um, everything is meaningless. There's there's no meaning or uh, a reason even to live. And I think, you know, those are the really interesting philosophical questions here, I think. Questions like, what is the meaning of life? What are we even asking when we ask that question? What is the meaning of life? And, um, and could you live a meaningful life even if you didn't leave, uh, in some sense, a lasting impact on, um, on the world around you? While we've got you here, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> yes. You have 30 seconds. That's a whole nother show. <laughs> well, that we have a saying for that. That's a story for another. What if? Yes. And if we crack that one, I think we're done.
I think we would just to retire, say goodnight. No and, more uh, podcasts. No more podcasts, no more what if, because we figured it out. Um, but yes, we don't have probably the time to get into this uh, today, but we do appreciate you spending time with, you see what I'm doing here? Yeah, time. Because like we're travel, talking about again, time travel. Yeah. It's really good. Really um, but seriously, <laughs> great stuff. Uh, Paradox of time travel. Uh, where can we find it and where will we be able to find the new edited version? Yeah, so the new uh, paperback edition of the book uh, just came out this summer. It's from uh, Oxford University Press, and you can find it online at any online bookseller. I'm, um, the book is primarily targeted to uh, professional philosophers, but I'm a teacher, and so I always try to make uh, my material accessible to any students of philosophy. So if you're interested in philosophy, if you're interested in time travel, I definitely think you should check it out. I'm interested in both of those, and I would appreciate reading that it's because, if, as you say, you make it accessible to lesser intelligent people like myself, I think I will get something out of it. I didn't say that exactly, <laughs> but I tried to write it for everyone, yeah. <laughs> That's what we try to do here on What If as well, uh, making some of these you know, complex, complicated hypotheticals more accessible. You've helped us do that today, so appreciate your time. Uh, and we look forward to catching up with you in the future. Or in the past. Yes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Thanks, Ryan, Ryan Wasserman. Thank you. Take care. So great stuff with Professor yeah. Ryan Wasserman and helping us get beyond just the sort of, you know, the plot devices of time being stuck in a time loop. We're actually getting into some of the science and the philosophy of it because he's kind of a double threat in that regard. He's got a, a foot in both camps. Yeah. The Fly in the Ointment, it sounds like, though, for Groundhog Day and let's say other movies that have that idea of coming back, waking up the same morning, at least according to Ryan, is that the you would morning. actually see, you would come back and you there'd be, be a, there'd be you in the bed. Yeah. So a younger you, version or an older version? Uh, young, 20, you, 24 hours. Younger. Yes. Wouldn't that scare the crap out of you? Yes, it certainly would. <laughs> The world does not need another me. But again, to his point, if you did it over and over again, then you have a room full of Phil Connors, the weatherman. So obviously creative license with these movies, you're not going to, that's not the point in the end. Creative, I, yeah. I mean, maybe creative license with the science. Yes. It's, it's, we're not necessarily sure that that would, I mean, there's no evidence as of yet to suggest that that's. That's why they call it theoretical physics. Right, yeah. At the end of the day, your theory, my theory and arguably Ryan's theory, they're all equal. <laughs> now, of course, I think Ryan's theory takes yes, uh, maybe to, yes, and, of, of, and he, we mentioned some other people like Kip Thorne, you know, a Nobel laureate, uh, you know, high level physicist, and that's why Christopher Nolan movies for me are so great because he really wants to get the science right. He he wants the audience to like it, but he also wants the Ryan Wassermans to like it as well. Well, I actually did see that movie. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're talking about the uh, Interstellar. Interstellar, which was great. And he's right. And Matthew McConaughey, he was amazing. Kind of lost me at the end because of the science. Yes. I mean, you had to be, I mean, I'm smart, sure. But uh, you had to really follow the science A to Z to understand what was... Uh, what was happening at the end? Still a very enjoyable movie. Definition of a movie you have to see more than once. I walked out of the first time seeing a theater exactly like what you're saying. There was aspects where I was like, not sure. I mean, it's hard enough to keep up to Back to the Future. Right. With some of the... Not to mention Back to the Future 3. Yeah, like, I mean, once you get into time, it's a headache. Yeah. Because you're trying to keep... what the, like, But... The, they were bang on with the physics and whatever that thing was that they built at the end. I can't remember the name of that. The no, uh, I will never whatever, uh, Google it. Um, but 
But in the end, after going back to see Interstellar multiple times, I've seen it in the theater probably three times since. Really? And I've watched it again. I it's one of it's becoming one of my favorite movies. Partly because it's a very good movie and it's a well told story. But that scene, and again, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, when they go down to the surface of the planet for what is hours and they come back up to the ship and the other guy has aged 25 years or whatever it is because the speed of light and all like this, that's when you get into the sort of the special relativity stuff and the Einstein stuff where time speeds up at certain whatever. Anyways, I love watching these types and I'm going to check out this. What was the the Spanish movie? The, uh, well, uh, the Spanish movie, I'm, I was talking about the Spanish TV show, Money Heist. And I've already forgotten. We're going to have to rewind. And- it was something crimes. Money crimes? Time, time crimes? crimes. Time crimes. There you go, people. Um, well, you could just also time travel in this episode and rewind to the earlier conversation where actually Ryan spells it out. But overall, a fun, let's say, trip today because we go through the sort of the Groundhog Day stuff, which again, like we talked about for you, for me, and for a lot of people out there, it was really the beginning of this type of not just time travel, really the genre of stuck in a time loop. That was fun too, because we didn't necessarily talk about the science of yes. everything throughout. It was, you know, just talking about the philosophy of stuff, which we can do on what if, why not? We struck the perfect balance, yeah. just like Groundhog Day. They strike it between comedy and philosophy. We strike it between you and me. That's right. We strike it up. All right. I'd like to thank Danny Rubin once again for joining us in the first half, as we mentioned on What If Discussed. You want more What If? Well, you should sign up for the What If Explorers Club newsletter for tons of cool science stuff. and Find out what, what else we're doing behind the scenes here at What If. And we're doing stuff. There's stuff going on at all times. There's photographs. I think you will find some photographs in this week's newsletter of us on set here. We've changed the set. If you haven't watched the video podcast, uh, you won't know what we look like. But uh, Check it out. Go, go to YouTube and watch the What If Discussed podcast. Because uh, there's a whole lot more to, to uh, you'll like it a whole lot more when you see Richard and I in well, person, would you say? That's a matter of opinion, but sure. <laughs> well, at any rate, go to the What If, uh, start signing up for the What If Explorers Club newsletter by going to whatifshow.com. And hey, do you want to know how to survive as, say, the last person on earth? Well, subscribe to our new channel, How to Survive. It's on YouTube. Go there to find out. Uh, that's it for today's show, Richard. I'm going to wrap things up. A, a a great few hours, minutes, whatever it was, uh, going through time with you, with Danny Rubin, mm-hmm. with Ryan Wasserman. And uh, I look forward to checking out some of the the, the films and the, the series that were referenced, but could do this all again and wake up tomorrow and do it just like Phil Connors did in Puxatani. Maybe I'll see you again tomorrow morning and we'll be 24 hours younger. Good Lord. All right. We'll see you next time on What If Discussed.